This is a Federal News Network podcast. They're out. The annual rankings of the best places to work in the federal government compiled every year by the Partnership for Public Service and the Boston Consulting Group. NASA is number one for large agencies. That's for the 10th year in a row. But overall, the news is not good. Employee satisfaction and engagement scores on average dropped quite a bit and for quite a lot of agencies. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me now to talk more about this. And, Drew, I think we were all shocked to see this 4-5% drop in average satisfaction score across the government. That took everybody by surprise. That's right. As you said, it was a 4.5% drop since 2020, which was last year's list of best places to work. So this year we're at 64.5% on average government-wide for employee engagement and satisfaction And the Partnership for Public Service credits a lot of that drop to the timeline for when the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, which is what they base the rankings on, it's administered by the Office of Personnel Management every year. Those were distributed in November and December 2021 at a time when there was a lot of uncertainty about return to office plans and a lot of other things going on. At the Partnerships Awards Ceremony for the Best Places to Work, Lauren young Shulman, who's Vice President for Research, Evaluation, and Modernizing Government, she took us back to that moment when the FEBS was being distributed. We saw infections from COVID go down for a brief time period. Telework was decreasing. People were starting to come back to the office nationwide. And then Omicron started dominating the headlines. Remember that? The federal pay raise that year was just 1%. By the end of the year, only 55% of the nominated political appointees put forward by the Biden administration had been confirmed. In other words, federal employees were dealing with a lot that year. Yes, a lot of uncertainty. And I think it was more the political situation. And this is always an area of ferment than it was COVID or the uncertainty over that. But in that, I disagree a little bit with the conclusions from BSG and also from the partnership. But Heck, they did great work. Let's talk about some good news, though. Which agencies particularly did well? Besides NASA, they're kind of a perennial here. And they've got their telescope that's working great. Right. So NASA is number one again. But aside from that, the Department of Veterans Affairs was a big winner this year. They were the only large agency on the list of 17 to have an actual marked improvement between 2020 and 2021 for their satisfaction score. But even with that, they only saw a 0.2% increase from 70 up to 70.2%. It is, though, the first time that VA has ever made the top five list. A couple other notable ones. In other words, a lot of agencies fell, and so VA's rock kind of came to the surface. That's right. They... You know, they moved up several slots this year, so there was improvement there. And, you know, there were some other notable agencies for midsize and small ones. So the U.S. Agency for Global Media, they had the largest increase for midsize agencies, about 11 percent raise. And Global Media is noteworthy because there has been so much political turmoil there. You know, Trump administration appointees and even during Obama, people came and went. News executives came and went and their whole role was debated and so on. So I guess there's some oil on the waters there now. And yeah. Maybe that's why they went up. And it's interesting about VA, I just wanted to say, too, because it's an agency where probably three quarters of the workforce is unionized. It doesn't have great labor relations. And yet it's steady with respect to employee satisfaction. I don't know what that says, but it says something. And Drew, what are some of the agencies that didn't do so well? So something interesting this year is that even the agencies who maintained really good rankings on the list still saw drops in their overall score. 
it kind of depends on what agency leaders really want to look at. Do they want to compare to other agencies or is it more about making internal improvements? So we saw, you know, for example, Department of Transportation fell by about 8 percent. Justice Department also by about 8 percent. And 8 percent is a huge piece of statistics. Absolutely. That's a very significant drop. And even more so, the Federal Trade Commission dropped 24.2 percent from second place down to 22nd place for midsize agencies. So there are a lot that have seen significant drops. Even NASA, who is number one again, did also see a drop in their score between 2020 and 2021. Interesting. Yeah. So then that gets to the question of the Biden administration has centered on making the government a model employee. There's a lots of language in that in the president's management agenda. I think it's the very first pillar. And that brings up the question of how agencies do with the private sector and the news there is not so great either. Right. So the partnership did kind of compare how agencies are faring against or when looking at them compared to the private sector. For that, the private sector score was about a 79.1% out of 100. That's about 15% higher than 15% higher than the, the agency's score. And managing director and partner Danny Werfel at Boston Consulting Group, that group works with the partnership to produce these rankings. He talked a little bit about how the problem is a little bit more complex than what it might seem. I think we're all going through an inflection point across industries on how to engage our workforces. Some of it's generational, some of it's related to the pandemic, some of it's related to other Uh, mental health issues that are going on across the United States, and how as a community of both employers and employees do we work together? I think I don't want to isolate the government as being always lagging the private sector. In some cases we are, and in some cases we're not. But uh, I think working across industries also might make sense, not just solving it in the government by itself. And Danny Werfel is right about that. There are some agencies whose average engagement scores were higher than the average in industry. And we should also point out that the industry score is not from the same survey. So the numbers are not technically comparable, but they do a similar methodology to arrive at that industry score. So at best, you could say it's kind of tough to tell. And the other question that comes up all the time is whether agencies use these results to make changes and try to make things better. Right, Tom. So the lowest scoring question on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey this year was, do you think the results of this survey will be used to make changes, as you said? That really points to a key problem in the way that agencies, I guess, are handling these surveys. We see that a lot of them maybe don't communicate well enough with their employees about the changes that they're making. That So maybe that's part of it. It's hard to say exactly what it is. As one example, Katie Kale, who's the deputy administrator at the General Services Administration, talked a little bit about how she's trying to encourage her employees to take the survey and continue providing feedback. We communicate with them very often to make sure that we are listening to what they have to say and then thanking them for giving them their the feedback and making sure that we are acting upon that feedback. We're still in uh, FEVs for this year and we are very focused on making sure that we're hearing everybody's voice, whether it's um, the administrator or me uh, sending emails to all of our uh, employees nationwide to say, hey, we want to make sure that we're the best, um, either within the agency, a little bit of competition, um, or uh, between our other sister agencies. And that really does come up as a profound point, is people just want to be thanked and at least know they're appreciated. 
Now, a pat on the back without a showing of the green is not necessarily the most effective thing, but without even the pat on the back, then you've really got a problem on your hands. Right. There, are, I mean, you can say there are some just kind of simple things that a lot of agency leaders say you can do, which is just saying, hey, I, you know, I took this feedback, I, I hear you, and this is what we're doing to make changes. So even something that simple can make a difference. And I think they said, too, that the surveys are being prepared for the 2022 year to measure for results next year. Where does all that stand? That's right. So we are in the middle of FEBS being administered right now. Employees are taking the survey. And it's, you know, we're just going to have to see next year where that all leads. For example, uh, at National Science Foundation this year, Wansi Gardner, who's the chief human capital officer there, they the that agency did really well this year. But he says there's always room for improvement and he's looking for ways to, you know, keep the ball rolling for 2022. I think next year we're just trying to level set how we're going to work in the future. We want to make sure we upskill and uptrain our people to make sure they have the resources and the tools they need to work in this new environment. We want to give our managers and supervisors the tools they need to make sure they can work in a hybrid environment and be as effective and efficient as they were before and even better than before the pandemic. I think a lot of times we talk about technology and we talk about different types of systems. But most importantly, I'm looking at leadership and then make sure we communicate and we have the open, honest dialogue. I found as I've looked at this thing, people talk about technology, they talk about the digitization and everything, but the bottom line is we need human-to-human interaction and contact, and leadership and management is so very important and critical in this time as we go forward. That's Wanzi Gardner, Chief Human Capital Officer at the National Science Foundation. All right. Good advice. We've been speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Be sure to check out her coverage of the best places to work. And we've got all the rankings for all the different sized agencies. Check them out at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, uh, current times. I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.